0: Success doesn't always feel like success and when it looks like you've made it to the rest of the world, you can be left feeling like there's still so much to do, but without a clear direction or plan. On the Success That Last podcast, we're going behind the scenes with business owners, real estate investors and industry consultants to deconstruct the complicated topic of success. We'll be exploring questions, strategies, and experiences that help create clarity and confidence surrounding your financial decisions. Here's your host, Jared Siegel. Why do only 3% of family businesses make it to the fourth generation? Is it bad leadership, bad development of the next generation, bad business planning? Maybe that's some of it, but that certainly can't explain why 97% don't make it to the fourth generation. I recently encountered some literature from Harvard way back in 1978. They presented a rather simple model, but the model was insightful. It was this, three circles labeled family, ownership, and business. However, they organized these circles so that they intersected a lot like a Venn diagram. By doing so, it created different intersections, these intersections representing various interest groups within a family business. So you could have a family member who is an owner but they don't work in the business. You could have, have a family member who was an owner who did work in the business. You could have a family member who worked in the business but wasn't yet an owner. And then there was another set of categories, non-family members. You could have a non-family member who was an owner who didn't work in the business. You could have a non-family member who is an owner who did work in the business and you could have a non-family member who was also working in the business. So as we started to visualize these intersections, I gained a clarity about this complexity that today's business owners are faced with, with a clarity that I hadn't really appreciated before. It helped me understand why 97% of businesses don't make it to the fourth generation. So that's why I'm really excited for today's conversation with Mark Wickman. He's a business owner himself and has been for over 25 years. Today, he spends his days helping family businesses manage conflict across generations, and create greater clarity and communication across teams. Mark's actually the founder of the Family Business Council and happens to be the author of a couple of books, most recently, The Family Business Teeter-Totter. Mark and I happen to share a couple of common clients, and it was that commonality that provoked this conversation we're going to have today in the first place. Mark's clients were raving about him. They said Mark did an exceptional job mining for conflict in a healthy fashion. Excuse me. The client said that Mark helped to quantify the cost of inaction and then ultimately that he did an exceptional job creating a healthy culture across generations. So in light of all of the headwinds today's business owners are having to navigate, I'm incredibly excited for today's conversation with Mark to better understand some of the insights that he's garnered about businesses that have navigated these complexities well, And the insights that he's garnered over the last 25 years of working with these clients. Hey, Mark, I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to our time today for a while. Likewise, Jared. It's good to be with you. Awesome. So before we jump in and talk shop here, I'm holding your book in my hands. So tell me a little bit about this, the family business teeter-totter. I've known a lot of people that have talked about a book, but I don't know a lot of people that have knocked one out. So how does the book go from an idea to something that I'm holding in my hands?
1: I actually, in a former life, Jared, I wrote a book that was when I was practicing financial planning and a friend of mine repeatedly said, when are you going to write your book? When are you going to write your book? Well, our church asked me to do a class on financial planning and I thought, okay, this is maybe a good time. So after every class, I'd write a chapter and that led to this book we called Wealth or Wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H or W-E-L-L hyphen T-H sort of redefining what most people think of as financial freedom. And our, our feeling was that, that finances, if you had rungs on a ladder, it could never get higher than third rung, that family and faith needed to be in front of that. And actually, your money could do a better job if it was on the proper rung, as opposed to placing at the top rung and placing unrealistic expectations on money. And so Having that one under my belt, I transitioned out of financial services fully two years ago, and we brought a young guy in to take that over. But along the way, I've been able to start working with some family businesses on a retainer basis. And parenthetically, not a lot of people get to start a business while they're still receiving revenue from another business. Yeah. So that was fortunate. I don't know that Family Business Council. Well, in fact, I do know the Family Business Council wouldn't have gotten launched if I had to go out on my own cold turkey. So, along the way, I started collecting these stories, and I've always been one who would journal and write stuff. It came fairly easy to me. But the difference between taking a hundred pages of thoughts and publishing those versus creating a book—two different things. So, a friend of mine who'd written a bit. Pointed me in the direction of a guy who does some ghostwriting or coaching writing. So he took my 100 pages and made a real book out of it and working with me. And, and so it's family business teeter totter is really that collection of those stories. What sort are of the issues family businesses face? And really, we by default ended up with this title, the family business teeter totter, balancing those two words, but also worlds. And so we believe they are different worlds, but they overlap. There isn't this overlap, oftentimes this tension between the
0: family and the business. And so what is that balancing act? Excellent. So Mark, let's jump into that. Family business counselor, it's thought provoking, but what actually is on that menu? Uh, What fills your day? Yeah, that's a, a really
1: good question. And maybe backing up just a little bit, Jared. My life as a financial advisor, I'd bump into these topics that it didn't seem like accountants were going into diving into. Attorneys weren't, financial advisors weren't. Certainly the family therapist wasn't diving into the business part of this. So I've always been one who's willing to stir the pot and sometimes been accused of being a pot stirrer. So I thought somebody's got to jump in there. And so these conversations that weren't taking place that needed to take place. I thought somebody's got to provide a service there. And so I stuck a toe in that water and finally asked someone to pay a fee to help me facilitate that. And it grew and grew and grew. And what we realized was these conversations that weren't taking place that needed to take place were things like being sexist here, dad. We hope he's going to retire one day, but we have no idea when. Mm And who should be the next to sit in dad's seat? Should it be a son, a son-in-law, a daughter, a key employee? And then how do you convene and then facilitate that conversation so that
0: there might be some win-win scenarios that emerge out of that? You've used a phrase around me before where you talk about the need to mine for conflict. And yet conflict's one of those things, there's peacemakers in a family, right? And so people certainly don't want to stir the pot necessarily and, and you're the pot stirrer, I guess. So right. to borrow your phrase, how do you turn conflict that would be a landmine into a gold mine? So we all have different reactions to conflict. Typically we think of
1: flight or fight, but there's also this freeze, which is another form of flight. It's just a withdrawal internally. So understanding being aware of how I respond to conflict is a starting point. And then realizing that conflict is something that if we handle it properly, there is some valuable or in there. Yeah. And usually uh, when you have family history, people have some uh, guardrails, let's say, that they put up. So I say, well, we're not going any further with that. Mm-hmm. I can at times bring to the table what might we miss if we don't go there. And then how do we create a safe environment so that we can go there and play nice as we engage in this conflict and not only mind the conflict, but sometimes mind for the conflict, because if everything is all smooth and easy on the surface, we know there's stuff going on under the surface. Yeah. How do we get to that? And really, communication skills and trust, learning some tools to develop trust, to be, develop our communication skills, can lead people to the point where it's not like they're eager to go into the conflict, but they realize, okay, we've had some success going there and we've gained some valuable wins by
0: diving into this. Absolutely. I had <laughs> an experience with my business partners at the lab a couple of weeks ago. We had our annual partner offsite, and this year we hired the table group.
1: Oh yeah. And okay.
0: So, That's you, point screwed, and so yeah, we yeah went through all of his books you know death by meeting and the five dysfunctions <laughs> five of a team that, yeah yeah we didn't tackle the provocatively titled getting naked <laughs> probably for a good reason yeah <laughs> trying to keep a pc amongst the partners but uh but what's really interesting is that at its core the, the five dysfunctions of a team it just says trust is important which yeah. should be self-obvious self evident right but but what it requires is the trust must be present in order for meaningful conflict to occur and uh and in having a third-party facilitator uh, stimulate mind conflict to facilitate the conversations that we were struggling to have was yeah. really transformative. Yeah, uh, I mean, we, it was just gridlock. It was uh, it was challenging, even though we all probably knew what the right answer was to, to walk into it having not done that before.
1: Well, and that in Lansdowne's pyramid of the five dysfunctions, if you went through that, that bottom. Uh, layer foundation of term, yeah, yeah is that uh, is trust yep vulnerability based trust and when that is not there the consequence is what he calls artificial harmony
0: yeah it's and legal.
1: yeah we live with so much artificial harmony in our lives and rather than fearing the consequences of opening my kimono yeah will we, we'll, Not maybe not getting naked literally, but but opening that for the the listeners. who Mark!
0: Mark is still closed.
1: That What do we miss by living with artificial harmony? And our fears, our fears often hold us back. And one friend shared this idea that we're moving down a path, a road that's marked fear, and we hit a fork in the road, and we have to choose which way we're going to go.
0: Yeah.
1: One direction is marked control
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the other direction is marked trust. What keeps us oftentimes from going down the trust path is that we don't know, trust is kind of like a free fall. We don't know where the bottom is. Yeah. And we've all done these exercises of the trust fall Yeah, and, and, and team building, but we live with that regularly. And so the only other alternative is control and control force creativity. It doesn't bring my best to the table. I'm afraid of what Jared's going to think if I say this. And that's where this facilitator, and, and this is the role that we play, is we open up space in the conversation. So often the conflict can can be one-on-one and in a, that's a line between two points. There's no space. Yeah, We as a third point open up that space so that you can hear differently and speak differently Mm -hmm. and i can do the same
0: absolutely i I want to spend a second to go back on what you just talked about in terms of trust the one thing that our facilitator uh, articulated to us that i thought was was notable was different kinds of trust Mm -hmm. and so there's predictive trust and there's integrity trust and and those can be present but you emphasize the need for vulnerability-based trust which is different and i I would imagine that that is heavily rooted in in our identity which might be one of the biggest powder kegs there is Agreed. so how does identity uh influence the way that people interact with you and and the way that they interact with their families and their business yeah
1: yeah push pause there for just a second jared because i want to share a definition of vulnerability okay and then we'll then we'll come back to this identity thing so to me, there's a difference between vulnerability and transparency.
0: Okay.
1: Um, one of the most watched TED Talks uh, on, on YouTube is Brene Brown's yeah. talk on vulnerability. And she makes that distinction between what is really exhibitionism and vulnerability. So for me, transparency is you come over to my house for dinner. And at the end of the meal, we, in, in some containers, put leftovers put cellophane over it, you spend the night, and the next day you look in the refrigerator. Transparency is you see the leftover. Okay. Vulnerability is I let you take the leftover, put it in the microwave, heat it up, and, and eat it. That there is something, vulnerability means I hand you something that you could use to cause me loss. Yes. In that case, it's it's a meal, but in other cases, it can actually be a weapon. My wife and I go through this. She will share vulnerably. And the worst thing I can do is then throw it back. Weaponize it. Yes, Yeah. exactly. So I think it's important to understand the difference between transparency. Here, I'll tell you my story. But vulnerability is I make myself so raw and exposed or yeah. yield myself to you. You now have something that you can use against
0: me. Why do we hate that so much? Why is that so uh, I think we're back. To,
1: I think we're back to fear. Yeah, I don't trust you that you are going to steward what I've handed you in a way that won't wound me.
0: Do you think it's a trust of others? Or like at times I, I almost think it might just be imposter syndrome. Like I don't want you to know know where i'm really at i I
1: think that's a really good point and this this will lead us into identity jared that that i've often said if you knew what goes on inside my head uh you'd run (laughs) and 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 that's a fear yeah Yeah. maybe there's some truth to that lynn and i are my wife and i are very very different and at times i've shared more than what other couples are comfortable with and they'll th- sometimes run. Yeah. But yet our kids have grown up and they've seen us fight and they long f- for relationships of their own that can be that deep and where those kinds of things can be shared where where we then f- have the chance to experience unconditional love. We are very attuned to conditional love. I'll love you as long as, or I'll love you if. Yeah. I love you no matter what. That's where this kind of trust that we're talking about can can develop. And that's where I'd go into identity. He's deceased now, but a Catholic writer, Henry Nowen, said there are three lies about our identity. First lie is, I am what I have. Second lie is, I am what I do. And the third lie is, I am what others say or think about me. And if that's the basis for identity, we will never discover our true identity. Yeah. For me, this this is me, doesn't have to be for anybody else. Yeah, who I am is anchored in whose I am. Yeah, and there is that sense of belonging. I believe there's a spiritual dimension to that. Uh, I belong to my creator, my God, but there's also a sense of belonging in this sense of community. And if that sense of home or anchor is there, then what I do should flow out of who I am, not determine who I am. What I have is a byproduct of who I am and what I do. And then what others say or think, yes, I wanna be aware and pay attention to that, to know that I'm accurately communicating what I wanna communicate. But if I'm always uh, this chameleon trying to shape myself to what I think, what's Jared gonna think if I say this? Yeah, I will never be I probably won't be transparent, but I certainly won't be vulnerable.
0: Okay. I love it. So in the spirit of vulnerability, then, uh, I'm going to ask you one of my favorite interview questions. Okay. Uh, you've been a business owner now for in excess of 25 years. One has to have paid a little of life's real-world tuition. Absolutely. So uh, do you have a favorite failure along the way? Something yeah. that uh, that helped yeah. shape you and you know, gave you a PhD? You learned a lot along the way? I think
1: the one that comes to mind most readily Jared is it kind of comes back to what I just talked about I have discovered that I'm a pleaser yeah and the approval of others is really important to me in fact Ignatius the founder of the Jesuits called uh, the approval of others one of uh, the three inordinate attachments I was inordinately attached to the approval of others therefore I didn't I didn't put myself out there I didn't say some of the things I needed to so I had a business partner where I let this go on for a long long time I just stuffed it Mm -hmm. I just stuffed it finally when it came out the conversation was Mark how would I have known that you carried this resentment if you hadn't told me and it was like touche my bad yeah I should have can't rewind that tape but I should have brought that to the table as it surfaced without the expectation that that partner would do anything about it but simply me being able to share it let's put it on the table, address the elephant in the room yeah and practice that kind of healthy communication. So the resentment that I carry I had to own my own resentment and I don't want resentment to build in my life because resentment fully fully born it, uh, ends up being bitterness. And that's you know that statement right? Bitterness is the poison I drink, hoping you'll die.
0: Interesting. That's insightful, thought provoking. Oh, I'm not
1: super familiar with that one. Yeah, I see that in a lot of family dynamic where that resentment isn't shared, and it just festers. And you see health issues manifest themselves, and certainly relational issues where. Something that happened years ago that wasn't dealt with then, people are stuck, yeah, and they don't move beyond that relationship.
0: Well, maybe we we'll talk about that for a second. So, I think what's, what's interesting and uniquely challenging is when your dad is your friend, is your boss, is your business partner. So, how does one conflict in one category yeah. of that identity and that you know of really textured relationship? How does it not permeate other aspects? Like, how do you handle conflict yeah. well so that business conflict is just that business conflict and you can still have a great Thanksgiving dinner? You know what I mean? Um,
1: I think you're describing the need for the Holy Grail. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have that? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I can tell you a few things that I think help with that. Down yeah. down there, Jared. We have a scene that is... Uh, the hats we wear and the roles we play. Okay. This is not original to me. I read it somewhere. The uh, story of a uh, family business, a, a key employee, not a family member goes to dad and said, your son who I supervise is not getting it done. Dad says, okay, we're gonna let him go. And it's on it's small enough company, So dad is the one yeah. to bring that news. So the son walks into dad's office Uh, and dad says, you're not cutting it. I'm going to have to let you go. Immediately dad puts on his dad hat and he says, son, I hear you lost your job today. I'm sorry. How can I help you? Now, not many people do that, but I think very quickly we see that there are these different hats and dad can play different roles. Yeah. And so there's a classic model, uh, uh, in family business of the family, there are three circles that overlap kind of a Venn diagram. Yep. Family, ownership, and business or operations, employment. Some people fit in all three categories. Some fit in one or two, some fit in only one. So understanding, are we having a family conversation now? Are we having an operations conversation now? Are we having an ownership conversation now? And sort of referring the conversation to the proper circle or context can eliminate some of the unnecessary conflict. There's conflict that we have to engage in. There's other conflict that if we just provide clarity, we can eliminate. And really, this goes on with conflict. If we want to continue down this path, Jared, is I believe there are two sources.
0: Okay.
1: Misunderstanding
0: mm-hmm.
1: and selfishness. Those are two sources of conflict. Misunderstanding through clear communication. The antidote to the misunderstanding is clarity, communication. Selfishness, basically, is I didn't get what I wanted, so I'm mad at you. And the antidote to that, the solution to that, is I'm not a priest, but it's confession. Yeah, I didn't get what I wanted. I'm mad. I have to own my anger. And to a degree, I have to own the consequences of my anger. Because how does my anger affect you or other team members? Yeah. If we have that confession, now, now we have a direction we can go together in. But if I never own it, never own up to my selfishness, then I am going to hijack or there's going to be ultimatums or statements like, well, you always or you never or uh, if I don't get this, I'm done.
0: Yeah, yeah we have a business partner. He's uh, he recently retired, Don Caldwell. And he, he counseled clients with his door open. So that's distilling his wisdom upon all of our staff and seniors and you regularly remind people that always and never are not fair fighting words. Exactly. Always exactly. and never. So yeah, uh, that's really interesting. So I guess we've been talking about uh, different content and thought leaders and books that have influenced the way that you and I think. And as an as an author yourself, besides reading the Family Business theater Talker, <laughs> available on Amazon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that plug, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are two or three books that you know? that I should read, you know, as a, as a young professional that's uh, growing in his leadership in his, cre- in his career?
1: The one that comes to the top of my list, and I recommend this regularly to people, is a book called Heroic Leadership by a guy named Chris Lowney. Chris started out to become a priest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think either realized that wasn't gonna make any money or what, so he he went to Wall Street and I think worked in Asia for a while. Quickly rose through the ranks, ma- made his millions, and then and then retired from that and became kind of a historian. And he actually studied the Jesuits and looked at how how did this organization, how's it been alive for 450 years? Yeah, and I don't know the numbers, but of all the 100 largest companies in America in 1900, something like 13 were even still around a century later. Yeah, what were the characteristics of that of that movement? Uh, and there were things like some of the soft stuff, heroism, love, ingenuity, uh, self-awareness, those kinds of things were these characteristics. So that's that's definitely one. Earlier, we were talking about trust. Uh, a lot of people have heard of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective uh, People. His son, also named Stephen, wrote a book called The Speed of Trust and another one called Smart Trust. Okay. Speed of trust, you don't need to read. I'll give you the, the two liner. I read it. Okay. So you know that in an organization, entity, uh, group, team, when trust is high, cost goes down and things get done faster. Yeah. When trust is low, costs more and things slow down. It's kind of like
0: TSA at the airport, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: So those are a few. There's, I, If anything, I read too much. Uh, is that a
0: thing? Uh,
1: yeah. I think over breakfast, we were talking about addictions. I think we can get addicted to just about anything. And back to if my worth or my identity is tied to what you think or say about me. Yeah. If I I think you think I'm smart, I'm good with me. And so I read more. Yeah.
0: Yes. Guilty. (laughs) Guilty. So, uh, well, people often say money doesn't change you. It just makes you more who you are. (sighs) And so, family business, when it's been it's been around for a while, can be an incredible wealth engine, um, and it's so tangible. It's easy to measure money. It's much more cha- challenging to measure how's my marriage, how's yeah. my, how's my relationship with my kids. Yeah, you know, how do I objectively quantify my joy? So, uh, in, in that that respect, um, how have you seen businesses do it well as it pertains to kind of the wealth that? that a business could create and how to think about the purpose of wealth and how challenging it can be. What's the right amount, what's enough for me and mm. what's enough for my kids. And mm. to what extent do I express generosity? I mean, it's, it's just complicated. It feels it, like
1: it is very complicated, Jared. And, and I, I don't want to pretend that there's any formula. Yeah. You know, Cause I think we all have, what well, I'll call it a journey with money. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I continue to learn. If I think I've got a formula, it probably means I've walled off something that I still need to learn about money. I do remember going to a group of advisors that met periodically, people who worked with family businesses in the Portland area. And I remember uh, one of the families that was interviewed um, was Melvin Marks, real estate management company downtown Portland. And I don't remember which family member shared this, but it really stuck with me the importance of giving to your community. How early on, particularly in mom's case, she had instilled this in the kids from very early on, that you, I don't know if she used the word obligation, but you need to be thinking from the outset, how do you give back? Because without our community, we don't have a business. That kind of mindset, I think, is is absolutely critical. For the Hampton family is another one. Hampton Industries David, who's kind of in the leadership role now, we were visiting a number of years ago and he talked about how they were bringing kids in at an early age when they got to the end of the year and were doing their charitable contributions and allowed the kids to make decisions with smaller amounts of money to see the impact, but also to embed, if you will, this value of giving back.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think one of the cool things that's happening is even in neuroscience, we're discovering that we're hardwired for generosity. Yeah, But there is this oxytocin that's released yeah. in the one who does the good deed, the one who receives the good deed. And if you and I are walking by on the street, it's released in us if we observe that. So that idea that there is this generosity gene.
0: Yeah, it's like biological. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: An awareness of that and a conversation around that cannot start too early and I believe never ends. because. Otherwise we end up with um, this phrase that is shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Yeah. That the farmer built this thing out of the ground. Yeah. The kids enjoy that. The grandkids don't often have the benefit of watching dad build it out of the ground. And so there can be a taking it for granted. So we're big on story. How do we capture the, the story of the family business and how do successive generations honor that story, build on it, but never lose sight of that story that that has been there from from the
0: outset? Yeah, if you think about history, uh, there's a long tradition of just oral tradition, right? Long Correct. before we were literate yeah. As, yeah. as as humans, it was how stories and purpose and values got got transmitted yeah. from one generation to the next. It's uh, people will say values are. Caught, not taught.
1: Caught, not taught. And yeah, I, 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 I would love to see us rediscover sitting around the campfire. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic, Jared. I think around the campfire, your face is kind of hidden. And so there's almost this safety in the darkness that lot Now, tom, sometimes strong drink flows and that kind of loosens <laughs> the tongue as well. But. But, yeah. but that oral tradition, um, here we were earlier talking about a couple books that I've written. Yeah, we write, but sometimes it's the storytelling around the campfire and picking the right context for telling those stories. Uh, and also inviting others into this story. The granddaughter that rides with grandma in the combine during harvest season or whatever. Yeah. And what happens there, those values are often caught. But along the ways there's some storytelling or tucking somebody into bed. And Grandma, tell the story about when, how do we pass those things on? Yeah,
0: I recently had the opportunity. I was working with a a Chick-fil-A franchisee. Mm. And uh, we were talking about the the revenue model at Chick-fil-A. And I thought, you know, the the Kathy Kathy family, family. there was uh, this tradition that started long ago. And I thought, well, what a wonderful way to tell the story. So there was a moment early in Chick-fil-A's uh, heritage where the franchisees were struggling, but the franchisee agreement required them to be employed only by Chick-fil-A. You could only be mm-hmm. focused there. And so uh, and they were struggling and some were looking for second jobs. And so uh, Truett Cathy, the, the founder, mm-hmm. he always provided this, this extra stipend at the end of the month to make sure that no matter who you were that your basic needs would be met and so now Chick-fil-A's franchise is wildly f- successful but that that stipend is still there because it's a reminder that the how loyal they were to to people that were part of their team and so now you know he's long gone franchisees today know that lesson and it's a story that's told in each each one of their monthly distributions
1: well and what you said just now jared makes me think of family businesses i work with yeah where let's suppose one of the siblings is struggling Mm -hmm. and mom and dad help out the reaction that often occurs in the other siblings that why would you do that you're enabling your you're feeding a bad habit. And then, well, are you going to take that out of my inheritance or or equalize and yeah. all of that stuff? I'm I'm traveling today and I'm gonna have a visit with a guy who's not a client. I've just heard about his story, a Dutch dairy farmer. And his daughter-in-law tells this story of how when the, almost the trip Kathy's story, if there's a family member struggling, you helped him out. That right. was that was the family rule. And and when things are Um, done that aren't spoken, sometimes in that prior scenario as I was saying, mom and dad helping out, it feels like they're enabling. Well, if the, the foundational kind of precept of the family is we help family members in need, then when something happens, you have that to bounce it off of. But absent those, we call them cultural covenants, yeah. Kind of our ten commandments to live by personally. Yeah. Absent those, then we're making assumptions. And we often we often judge mom and dad, we judge our siblings based on that. And that's a whole other conversation about fair and equal, which we can get into if you want, but it's it it we want to see people take their words and match their actions, and vice versa. Yeah. We actually have a little saying that you know the Sudoku puzzles. Yes. We change that and call it say, do, co. Say is state your intention. Okay. Do is do what you said you're going to do.
0: Yeah.
1: Co is if something changes, communicate.
0: Yeah.
1: Because so often, well, I thought you said this is the way we do things. Yeah, I did, but I changed my mind here. Well, communicate that ahead of time. Yeah. That's another way to eliminate unnecessary conflict in families.
0: And organizations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Lencioni calls the chief CEO, the CEO, the chief reminder officer. He's like, your your employees should have a world-class impersonation of you. That's a
1: great way to say it. A great way to say it.
0: Yeah. Back in the storytelling, um, you you think about uh, how powerful stories can be, you know, to transmit values, but it's also ideas. And, uh, and so the, the authors and content creators that uh, have influenced me the most as it pertains to story would be Chip and Dan Heath, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, made to stick and the power mm-hmm. of moments. And mm-hmm. you kind of talked at one point about uh, families creating kind of photo book moments, you know, archiving a special moment uh, as a family. You know, it's really the power of a moment in archiving oh, it and creating a, a memory and a memorial around that. Yeah. That's Really, at the end of the day, that's, that can be like relational glue. When, oh, so you know, When you get together with people that you haven't seen forever, you yeah. you relive those moments. Uh, those, the photo book, right? Yeah. That you that you yeah. together, whether it's with a client or a friend from high school.
1: Sure, and those the the photos that go in that photo album can be the real time kind of things that a son-in-law who said, "I want to do for my executive team what my father-in-law did for me. He believed in me and he fought for me." Yeah, and as he described that, how how powerful that was in his life but then he wanted to pay it forward for his executive team or the literal photo ops that there's a family gathering or the family goes on a cruise together and they build memories together take those pictures we say that cruises heal bruises yeah they're those kinds of coming together where maybe we're just talking about the family circle now but the operations and the business side of things benefit because we've done some of that gluing or sometimes it's maybe we can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again but the saucer broke on the floor and we can't glue it back together again
0: yeah cruises your heel bruises yeah Yeah, maybe that's your third book is is just uh my little
1: saying yes yeah we have a client who says I love your little mark isms and some of those maybe that are you, original, but most times we just steal stuff. Uh, Andy Stanley's a guy who can either through alliteration or just three or four words pop a thought. Yeah, it sticks. It sticks exactly.
0: Maybe you put make t shirts, you put them on the website, you know, there multiple, you go. multiple revenue lines. <laughs> yeah. See, you're the
1: builder, the builder. Uh, <laughs> you build that
0: uh, family business consultant and t shirt salesman. There you go.
1: There you go. Diversification.
0: You you want them moving yeah, asset classes that move in different directions? <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's good. Said so shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And uh, when you actually look at the objective numbers of, how successful businesses are in terms of staying power—it's pretty, pretty long odds. To, pretty bleak. Yeah. yeah so, uh, why is that? Why? Why? Why do they fall apart? So,
1: two parts or, or two kind of pieces of that answer, Jared. One, I will say this is one of the reasons I do what I do. Family businesses, small businesses are the backbone of our communities. They're the ones that are creating jobs locally. They're the ones who. Uh, allow people to shop local to volunteer in our schools and our athletic teams worship at our houses of worship all of those kinds of things they they're the web of community Um, and they're not getting a lot of wind put in their sails so I said somebody needs to be uh, as one client called me the conductor on the hope train
0: okay that
1: that there's some hope for these that they can make it forward my experience is the other part of the answer my experience is it's oftentimes not a bad business model, business plan. It's not the economy. Uh, it's two things. It's relationship, communication. Yeah. When those things go sideways, those relational wedges get driven. And without help, those are often irreparable. And so uh, we've seen this, particularly in ag families, where if we don't get alone at the sibling level, we tear the land in half.
0: Yeah, that doesn't work.
1: And then the next generation, what's their point of reference? We call it an unintended inheritance that the siblings passed on to the cousins. Yeah. And so when they don't belong, they tear it in half. What do we end up with? We end up with scraps that nobody can make a living from. And so I believe it's worth fighting the fight to see if we can avoid the tearing in half. Having said that, and this is only recently I've come to this, but I believe it wholeheartedly. Family business is worth fighting for. It is not worth dying for. There are times where trust is so far eroded that for the sake of all use the cousins, let's give them the chance to make their own decisions whether they celebrate one another's birthdays, weddings, graduations. If we continue in family business with these, these just, the wedge there, then we know that there's going to come times where we don't go to Thanksgiving at their house, yeah, or I don't talk to my brother anymore, and that's that's very sad, but but if business gets out of the way, um, maybe there's a chance for those cousins to heal some of the family relationships.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, back up to uh, the conductor, of the Hope Train. <laughs> who, who doesn't need one of those? So I was actually observing something in my own life. I had an experience uh, where, where I was overseas uh, in a developing country and I, for an extended period of time. And I, when I came back, I, I was overwhelmed with the amount of happiness that was, was present in my life. And I it was merely because I was inventorying all of my blessings in a way that I had never yeah. inventoried them. And so it's like, sort of reflect upon that a little bit more and what was as i came to understand it as much as i do today it's really that problems scream but blessings whisper right? mm. Mm. like you don't have That's to work good. very hard to to find a problem it's just screams it's like it's it, it's all consuming mm. but your blessing doesn't you know so you really have to be intentional yeah. about like inventorying what's going well and so, uh, you know, locally here in the Northwest, Greg Bell wrote a book, What's Going Well. And our firm has worked with him over the years, but uh, uh, at an individual level to get better because it's so unnatural uh, for me. I've, I've started to play around with a gratitude journal where you start yeah. your day yeah. in, in identifying different things that you can be grateful for, you know, yeah. and, and it's kind of what you're thinking about, you see. Uh, so it's been, it's been helpful. I have plenty of room for growth, though.
1: Well, and I, I appreciate that, Jared. I, is this, I mean, you work in the area of finance and I, I did for a long time. Is this kind of like loss aversion? That yeah. there's a multiple, we need a multiple of good to gain the feeling that a little bit of bad brings us.
0: Yeah, kind of the behavioral biases that we have yeah. that, you know, yeah, yeah I, I think absolutely. And, that's,
1: and I think that's why, one of the reasons why we have to be very intentional about gratitude. Yeah, that um, it doesn't take much effort to focus on the negative. Sorry, but if I turn on the TV, and I listen to whichever bent there is on the news, I can get mad either way. Totally. Yeah. So I have to be intentional about turning the TV off to say, I'm not going to flood my mind with that stuff. I want to not miss some of the good stuff. I'm vertical today rather than horizontal. Yeah, whatever it is. You're on the right side of the dirt. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so one of the things that's helped me, because I like the negative, it doesn't take a lot to create anxiety. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I remember going into a client meeting with a family one was very anxious about it. And for some reason that morning, I thought, all right, let's turn this around. What if you anticipated what's going to happen in that meeting? In a a positive sense, look for the good that might occur in that meeting. Number one, I didn't carry that anxiety into the meeting. Number two, because of that, I was a better version of myself in the meeting. And number three, I saw the good things. Yeah. And that kind of intentionality—it's—it's like going to the gym. We can build a muscle that will override then a knee-jerk reaction. I can override anxiety if I build this muscle of anticipation for yeah. what's positive. And so, yeah, the hope the hope thing, I just, when I've reflected on my personal mission statement or my purpose statement, is that I'm on this planet to breathe hope into the people that I encounter, that their, their lives matter, that they can live on purpose, in a sense, with a sense of purpose, that we're here for something that is bigger than ourselves. Mark's second law of thermodynamics is that left to my own devices, I will collapse in on myself. Okay. And we're made for something more than that. Yeah. And so if I want to live that uh, and quote unquote preach that, uh, that gives me a real sense of purpose in what I do. And not just in my, with my professional hours, right? Hopefully in all relationships. And unfortunately, when it gets closer to home, you know, am I doing that with my wife? Am I breathing into her uh, with a sense of purpose? Am I giving her what she needs to be her best so that she, in turn, can give to others?
0: Absolutely. But, uh, how long do you have a purpose statement? You know, I, don't you know, I a think you uh, guys have, have taken the time to craft one.
1: I think uh, you met, mentioned Chip and Dan Heath, story brand Donald, Donald Miller. I went to the first storyline conference that he did in Portland. Ten years ago, yeah, and part of it was r- sort of writing, doing, taking inventory, of writing the story of our lives. So I'd, I'd I'd played with it before then, but I think it was that was definitely one of the things that w- served as a catalyst to moving in that direction. Um, and you know, do I? I probably should read it every day. I don't, but I, it's always there. And I think the reduction of it by this client. And to mark you the conductor on the hope train is a constant reminder of my why, to use Simon Sinek terms. Yeah,
0: that's, well, it's catchy. That's, uh, and, and powerful. Well, you know, I guess, uh, I want to wrap our time today with, uh, really kind of unpacking what a, a business, uh, health coach might, you know, family business health coach mm-hmm. would do. And in, in many ways, I think the words coach or mentor come come to mind. And so, kind of curious how like mentorship and uh, I guess the investment of others in you has influenced you and then how that influences you today. So if aside from your parents, who who are the most influential people in your journey uh, thus far? It's an interesting question because I actually filled out an
1: application for a program I might be joining and they asked um, who was most significant, I think it was asked this way, Who's been most significant in your? They use spiritual transformation, but I just it caught me up short. Who who is a person that shaped me the most? Yeah, it's my wife. Yeah, we are we are opposites. Opposites attract, but opposites can sparks can fly. Yeah, and I lived in a world for a long time, Jared, where I thought that if everybody were like me, the world would be a great place. My way is the right way, and through three different people that were in my life, but my wife is the one who's been there all along. I've learned that I can live in a world that isn't just black or white, or even black and white, but I can live in a world of color. I still remember the first time, I was actually living in France at the time, and at Sunday night, they showed an American movie. On on this particular Sunday night, The Wizard of Oz came on. And when Dorothy entered Oz, it went from black and white to color and I went no way because the only time I watched Wizard of Oz was on a black and white TV (laughs) and and so this move from a black and white or black or white world to a colorful world um, my wife has helped me enjoy the colors of the world because of my having to let go of my way or the highway yeah and live in this world where I can appreciate these differences and the beauty of that and so I'd say that's number one. There, there have been several key mentors, both business-wise and life-wise, that I've had over the years. And I've been fortunate enough to reconnect. One of them just died. He was actually a Catholic priest that I would go to for spiritual direction once a month. He just died. But another guy is kind of taking his place now. A good friend that I've known for almost 40 years. And we, we FaceTime, he lives in Philadelphia. We FaceTime once a month. And then he throws me these books to read that are over my head, but I try and dive in anyway. Yeah. Um, And so I think leaders are learners. So for me, that's continuing to uh, read and explore, particularly things that I'm not comfortable with. Yeah. Um, And then for me, also journaling. Um, Was it Socrates who said an unexamined life is not worth living? Yeah. Um, Trying to journal and increase self-awareness. Um, and hopefully, as my self-awareness increases, my empathy for others also continues to increase. It's
0: tough have to find a way to, to end it better than that. Mark, really appreciate uh, our time today and uh, our conversation.
1: Likewise, Jared. Thanks so much.